turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Now, I just want to give you a little surprise up front here. Most incompetent people actually don't know that they're incompetent. Okay? Now, you're like, well, that's an interesting line here. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of research that's gone into this. There's a guy by the name of Dr. David Dunning at Cornell University, and he's been studying incompetency and incompetent people. And he has drawn this conclusion, conclusion that, uh, that incompetent people do not have the ability to recognize their incompetence. In fact, they have, in their studies, have decided that the same abilities that make someone competent are the same abilities needed to recognize if you're incompetent. So if you don't have those abilities to be competent, you will actually never recognize that you're incompetent. Or just to kind of simplify that, ignorance is bliss, okay? And that's, like, from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, they wrote this. Not only do incompetent people each reach erroneous conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but their incompetence robs them of the ability to realize it. Now, now none of you have ever suffered from incompetence, right? So we're talking about other folks here, but, you know, it's a hard world for some people. And maybe you've had to work with someone like this, you know, just the special joys of someone who's got great bravado. They got a lot of talk, but not a lot of results, right? And this can be documented. Incompetency is something that people have. And we're going, well, that's for other people. But there is a spiritual corollary that all of us can come to appreciate. And that is this. We face times of difficulty, of challenge, and we very rarely realize what it will take for us to experience victory. To actually fulfill what God has called us, especially in this generation. And so, let me just tell you, the text that we're going to look at today, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31, this is a critical text. Because if you and I are going to overcome incompetency, we got to know the facets of failure, and we have to know the only source of victory. And if you don't have the principles that are actually laid out in this passage down, why, you probably going to suffer from a great deal of spiritual failure and all the results that go with that. So let's just take a look at some of these highlights. Look at these facets of failure. See if you can't pick them out here. Let me just jump back in the scenes. We're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has just finished this Passover meal with his disciples. He has told them some extremely ominous news. He told them that his body is going to be broken. It was symbolized by this bread and that his, his blood is actually going to be shed for their sins. For the, for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 28. And after they conclude this Passover meal, they sing this hymn. Verse 30. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're going to make their way out of Jerusalem. They're going to go out the south side. They're going to pass the temple. It's going to be dark. It'll be late at night. But the streets are going to be crowded because not only do you have all the people from the north and the Pharisees who have actually gathered now in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They do that on the Thursday night. Jesus and his group just celebrated the Passover. But you have the many people who are preparing to actually celebrate the Passover the next day. These are all the people that live in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the south, as well as the Sadducees. They celebrate the Passover the next day. So the streets are jammed. What normally would be about a 30-minute walk, about three-quarters of a mile from Jerusalem to uh, the Mount of Olives is going to take a lot longer than anticipated simply because of the number of people that will be involved in, 
in Jerusalem and moving about. Now, the Passover was normally a rather joyous occasion. They would be speaking about how God had redeemed them, how he'd rescued them, taken them out of slavery. But for the disciples, they were completely thrown off. Jesus had just said some extremely difficult news. He had talked about his crucifixion. And he's now talking about his body being broken and his blood being shed. And there was more news that he had for him in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, when Jesus said this, he'd already told them that one of you is going to betray me. And they were all like, God, it can't be me. Now he says, all of you are going to fall away. And then he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. He says, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. This is an amazing prophecy. The book of Zechariah is a book that Jesus obviously thought a lot about. In chapter 12, verse 10, that's where that amazing passage is, where the one from the house of David is going to be pierced through and they are going to look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn. In chapter 11 in Zechariah, this servant is the one who suffers. And in chapter 13, there is this prophecy that the one who is equal to Yahweh, his associate, the sword is going to be drawn and this man is going to be killed. Jesus then quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and he says, just like it says, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. The full fulfillment of this, Jesus says, is about to happen. I am this shepherd and I'm about to to die and you are going to scatter. This is in fulfillment of the prophecy because Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, he has to do everything that the scriptures said about Messiah. But then notice what he says in verse 32. But after I have been raised, I would encourage you to underline that in in your Bible. Did you see that? After I have been raised. Jesus is in absolute full control and he's telling them not only of his upcoming crucifixion, but he's saying, I will rise again after I have been raised. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And so he spells out what is about to happen. He tells them about this resurrection. Now, they had seen Jesus actually raise someone from the dead. In fact, they had seen it three different times. In fact, Jesus is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He told them. He he actually raised Lazarus. This was on the forefront of their mind. And yet, Jesus is now talking about him being raised after he's dead. And they're trying to put this together. They're rather bewildered. And so then, what do you do? What do you do if you're Peter and Jesus is saying something that you don't quite get and it doesn't fit in with your timetable or how things should go? Well, what you do is you've got to open up your mouth and set the record straight. Obviously, Jesus is off course and guess who steps in? Verse 33, Peter, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus says, after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Verse 32, Peter says, oh, wait a second, Jesus. No way. No, no, wait a second. Even though all may fall away, you forgot about me. You can always count on me because of you. You know what? I will not allow this to happen. I, others may fall away but not me. Let me give you the first facet of failure. Spiritual failure. Where incompetence comes from. That is overlooking the words of Christ. You simply do not allow the word of God to sink into your heart, into your mind. 
Jesus spells out some amazing truth. I'm going to die. I'm fulfilling prophecy. But I will rise again and I will make my way to Galilee and that's where you will meet me. And it's as if he never said it. They just simply brushed it off and Peter starts speaking. That is, that's one of the facets of someone who's experiencing failure. But let me give you another one. And it's actually highlighted by Peter and the gang. And that is to have an overconfidence in one's abilities. Notice Peter, he spoke up. He says, you know, wait, wait, Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus just said, you're all going to what? What did he tell him? You're all going to what? You're all going to fall away? Jesus, Peter says, "Uh uh-uh, not me. And then Jesus says, listen, Peter. Jesus said to him, verse 34, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Before a rooster crows, this would be about 3 a.m. It was the, the watch of the night for the Roman soldiers. 3 a.m. is kind of basically when these roosters would start crowing. Jesus says, let me be explicitly clear. Let me show you how much I am in control of the events that are just about ready to transpire. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. It's as they're making their way to the garden. It's going to be close to about midnight when they're heading off to the garden of Gethsemane here. And. This is in about three hours, Jesus says, you're going to flat out deny me and you'll do it not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter said, talk about a guy who is who's confident in himself, right? Comfortable in his own skin and knowing where he's going. Peter said to him, Jesus, it doesn't even matter what you have to say. He says, verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And guess what? All the disciples said the same thing, too. Peter's taking the lead, man. He's got the bravado, man. He is macho. He's strong. And he's saying, hey, Peter, Jesus, even if I have to die with you. And the other disciples are like, man, Peter's looking real good, man. So, you know, hey, yeah, whatever Peter's saying, we're, same with us, man. Jesus, we're, we are with you to the death. Doesn't matter what you're saying. Doesn't matter what you're prophesying. Doesn't matter what's written. We're going to be with you. Let me tell you a great facet of failure is that's when you have overconfidence in your own abilities. And I think uh, every Christian wonders at some point, you, you, pro, you, you think about what, what would I do if I was faced with the ultimate test? Meaning, how would I respond if my life was on the line for my faith in Christ? I thought about it. I think we think about it every time we read about someone who actually does put their life on the line, whether they be someone from Iran or North Korea, someplace in Asia, or maybe even some events that are a little closer to home. When you think of like Cassie Bernal, Bernal and Rachel Scott, remember that Columbine shooting? When asked, do you believe in God? They said yes, and instantly they paid that ultimate price. Or the events that happened in Paducah, Kentucky in 1997, in a prayer meeting, and when a gunman shows up, they simply would not deny the faith. Or just up the road in Fort Worth on September 15, 1999. Remember in Wedgwood Baptist Church? They had this big rally of all these kids who had been at the meet you at the pole for that prayer time. And then that night they had met and there were hundreds of them gathered. They had a concert going on as well as a prayer time. And there was a guy who just was a fanatically anti-Christian man. He shows up and he started gunning down some of these students. 
killed eight of them. But there was a student there by the name of Jeremiah Neitz. And he had recently come to Christ out of a life of being in a gang and out of crime. And he was undaunted by this man. And he approached him and told him of his need to put his faith in Christ. The shooter was so alarmed and so taken aback by a guy who has such great faith and so strong in the face of deadly force that the shooter actually ends up taking his own life. And we wonder how in the world would we respond when faced with the ultimate question, would you pay the price for your faith? And most of us, as we ponder that, we're thinking, well, boy, I guess if the moment really came, I'd really show up. But really, how are you doing in a lot lesser moments? Like when you have the opportunity just to share the gospel with someone, a friend, a neighbor, your family member. And what happened? It's like you all forgot all about that, right? You could talk about anything else from cowboys to the cars, but you couldn't can't talk about Christ, though, right? Or the times that you that we could have stood up and said, hey, this is not right. No, I don't want to be I don't want to make any waves. And we just kind of meld into the background. Well, these guys, they're saying, you know what, Jesus, you can count on us. When in actuality, we're going to find out that they couldn't be counted on. Now, let me tell you, these men that we see here and all their bravado, they're going to completely fail. But Jesus, to demonstrate his amazing love, is going to redeem these men. He's going to transform them. And through them, he is going to proclaim the gospel. And they will pay the price. Most of them, and all except for one, are going to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And so Jesus tells them how it's going to be. They're all boasting and saying, absolutely not. That kind of leads us to a third facet of failure. Not only are you overlooking the words of Christ and you are completely overconfident in your own abilities, that third facet is that you are overwhelmed by human nature. Let me just tell you, there is just something built into our DNA that just seeks to erupt, to take us over. They are the passions and the appetites of our body. And though they're not necessarily wrong, when they're not under the control of the Spirit of God, when we're not yield to Him and His will, they lead to failure. For instance, to, to stand out and set yourself apart from others, like Peter. Guess where that comes from? It's, it's all built in. We like to be distinguished. And so Peter, he's going to throw everybody else underneath the bus, right? They're all going to fail you, but Peter, I'm not going to fail you, Jesus. Where does that come from? Well, that's all just being overwhelmed by your own human nature and your own pride and your arrogance. There's going to be a scene here not too long from now where Jesus says, I want you to pray. And he's looking him in the eye. And the first thing they're thinking is like, it's time to get some sleep. They're going to be overwhelmed by their human nature. Next week, we'll see that they're actually, Peter's going to say, Hey, you know what? This is kind of a threatening situation. What do you do when you feel threatened and you're a man and you've got to show how tough you are? Well, you're going to pick up a weapon and you start hacking at people. And that's exactly what he does. See, the disciples demonstrate their great insufficiency. God records all these events because he wants us to see how inadequate we are in our own strength. Think about it this way. Don't be surprised by failure. We are a failing people living in a failing world. We fail all the time. Every one of us, me especially. That's just who we are. We're failures. But in the face of all of our failures, there is Jesus. He's the one and the only one who overcomes. 
And so we have this scene here where these guys are just all in their bravado. They're, they're just demonstrating the facets of failure. They're showing their incompetency. They're playing the cards and saying we are about to fail. And let me tell you, when we have these same characteristics in our own life, they should be indicators we're on the path of failure. Well, then look at Jesus. So they've made their way. They're coming now to the place, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. So within, at the Mount of Olives, as you're kind of making your way up, there's this garden area. It was like, like privately owned, and it is called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And so with all these olive trees there, and there are still olive trees there today. In fact, some of them are 2,000 years old. Perhaps they were mute witnesses to what is about to take place. In the place where olives are crushed to oil, so Jesus chooses this place to pour out his soul in prayer. This was the place that he always went. Perhaps uh, the person that owned this garden was a friend of Jesus. He was in favor of what he spoke of. And so he said, I want this place to be made available for you. For you to meet with your men, to disciple, to teach them. For you to be away from the crowds, for you to pray. And so they make their way to Gethsemane. And he said... To his disciples, I want you to sit here while I go over there and pray. This likely wasn't the first time this happened. They had been to the Garden of Gethsemane before. This is well known. Judas knows where Jesus is going. And there likely was one entrance. It was probably walled off. And so perhaps this was the normal pattern. Jesus would leave his men at the gate so he wouldn't be disturbed when he's out praying. And so he tells them, I want you to sit here while I go over there and pray. It's a big clue. What I'm doing, I want you to do. And so he leaves them at the gate. But, verse 37, he took with them Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. This is actually one of the most fascinating passages of all of Scripture. Because you see the the utter humanity of Jesus being displayed at the same time he's sovereignly telling them all that is about to take place. He represents his his full humanity and his full deity. And yet he says to these two sons of Zebedee and to Peter, and he began to be grieved and distressed. In verse 38, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. This is the language of prayer. You see, when you were alert and awake, you were praying. I want you to stay awake. I want you to keep watch with me. He says, my soul is deeply, deeply grieved to the point of death. And so we find then Peter, James and John. So you got the guys at the gate. You got Jesus walks up certain ways. He tells them the statement. My soul is grieved to the point of death. He leaves them here. He breaks away just a little bit away from them, enough where they can see him. And then verse 39, he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face. This is the picture of someone who is just completely in abject humility in prayer. And he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible to let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Why? Why did Jesus take his men and allow allow them to see this? What's the point of that? It's the point that Jesus and Matthew keeps highlighting is, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The highest form of mentoring and discipling is when you show and lead others by your example. They, Jesus wanted them to know the anguish of his soul. So he tells them. 
He lets them see it. But he also shows them how it is you face these great trials and difficulties in your life. You pray. You fall in abject humility before God himself. They can hear these words. And so Jesus, just a little bit beyond them, he falls on his face and he says, My father. Notice the tenderness. My father. Jesus got himself in a lot of trouble for referring to God as his father. The Jewish people would refer to God as father only as the father of the nation of Israel. What bothered the the Jewish leadership about Jesus and him saying, my father, is that that is way too familiar. No person referred to God as his personal father. And yet Jesus continually did it. And he made himself equal with God by doing so. He was claiming divine sonship to be absolutely equal with the father. And in, in fact, like in John chapter five, verse 18, because he was doing that, they actually wanted to kill him. Picked up stones to stone him because he, being a man, made himself equal with God. Because why? He kept calling God his own father. They couldn't handle this. But you see, at the heart of Jesus is the absolute experience of fellowship with the father and the son. The greatest eternal joy of Jesus the Messiah is to experience the deep, abiding, unbroken fellowship with his Father, to commune, to express, to depend. And so he says, my Father. And then he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, and yet not as I will, but as you will. Luke records that it's at this point that there's actually drops of blood that start coming from Jesus. He says that they're they're like falling onto the ground, these great drops of blood. And this is a rare but well-documented situation. It's a malady called hematidrosis. What happens is that your subcutaneous capillaries, they burst. And that blood then actually moves into your perspiration and it's exited out of your sweat glands. And Jesus, because he's under this amazing amount of distress, literally he could potentially die. He starts, drops of blood are falling from him. Why? What, what is going on? And what is, what's this cup? Why such agony? I mean, didn't, didn't Jesus come for this very purpose, to die? Absolutely. That's what he said. I have come for this hour. His whole life came and focused on his death. This is why he came. Was it the, was it the fact that he realized that he was going to experience great physical agony? Well, certainly there is going to be horrendous amounts of violence that were going to be thrust upon him. But there were many people that were crucified and they didn't have drops of blood falling out of their perspiration. What is this cup? He says, see that? Let this cup pass from me. Now, that cup was a well-known Old Testament symbol of God's divine wrath against sin. Let me tell you what's going on here. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, he's not saying, I don't, I don't, I want to break from what we've established in eternity past, where I will give myself for my people to redeem them. I will actually literally bear their sins in my body. He's not saying, I want to forsake that rule. Let's do it anyway else. He's coming to terms in his humanity with the full thrust of what that is going to mean. And it's not only that he is going to actually pay for the sins of mankind, but there is an event that is going to take place that had never happened before. 
And that is that there is going to be a breakdown of fellowship between the Father and the Son. There's not going to be a breach in the Trinity, but there is an event that's going to take place that on the cross, where actually Jesus is going to be fully receive the wrath of God upon himself and God who cannot be in the presence of sin because he's holy, there is going to be a break of fellowship and Jesus who is praying, my father in the garden is going to stay on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is this cup, this cup of this, of the wrath of God, of the, of the silence of fellowship that Jesus had never known. For him, it is his greatest joy. I mean, think of it. You and I, we, we take our, our relationship with God so, in such a fickle manner, don't we? Oh, sure, God's always there whenever I want him, right? Or I need him. And yet for Jesus, it was his eternal joy to be abiding in the Father's presence, to do his will. You do what you want, Right? Why do you think Jesus was praying all the time? Getting up in the morning, praying all the time, praying all night. Do you know why? It was the soul's greatest delight to be in the presence of the Father. And really, when you come and take a look at what's taking place here, Jesus is expressing his unconditional love for the Father. He is pouring it all out. And he's praying and asking the Lord to give him the ability to do it. Yet not as I will but as you will. I submit myself to your will. Let me just tell you what takes place on the cross. Think of these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God really literally imputes our sin onto Jesus and Jesus then bears the penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. So he dies. Or think of this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. And so he says, not my will, but yours be done. Think if you were just a bystander. Think if you were watching Jesus, watching Peter and James and John, and watching the other disciples. What would you think? Whoa. What is, what's wrong with Jesus? Look at, I mean, here he is praying and he's, he's so grieved, he's so distressed, drops of blood, what? He's falling apart. Why can't he have the confidence of Peter and James and John and, and the other guys? I'll tell you what's taking place here. He is being strengthened by the Father which only comes through prayer. Because in just a few hours, Jesus will walk courageously to the cross. And all the others are going to completely fall away and leave him. Well, verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Huh. And he said to Peter, Peter's getting a lot of discussion here, talking time with Jesus. So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. I asked you to pray. You couldn't do it. And verse 41, this is one of the key verses. I'm, you need to memorize this, highlight it, but verse 41 is the secret to spiritual victory. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing to do as I have beckoned it to do. 
But the problem is our flesh is so weak. We give into our natural, natural appetites and our passions so easily. It's just part of our DNA to do so. And when we, when we face these situations where, is it wrong to sleep? No. But Jesus said, I want you to pray. Is it wrong to do a lot of things? Eat? No. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with these passions, but when they are not submitted to God and his will, whether it be passions of your body or thoughts that you might have, what happens is it takes us to sin. And so Jesus said, you know what? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When you face situations of temptation, think of a stoplight. Red, stop. Stop what you're doing. When you see that you're actually going down the temptation, yellow, yield. Just yield yourself to God. Even if you do it for 10 seconds, like, Lord, help me. Help me to go your way. Give me strength to face this. Face this. And green for go. Go in God's direction. See if, not, if this is not true. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But God gives us strength through Christ. Well, he addresses his men. And so verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, it's a little bit different. It's God, Jesus continually reaffirms that I'm going to go your way. If there is no other way, if there has to be this breakdown in our fellowship that we might redeem my people as an expression of my love for you to demonstrate the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God, so be it. And then, verse 43, he came and found them, whoa, sleeping. You think, like, okay, once you fell asleep, okay, wake up, guys, you're tired, it's been a long week, right? They're sleeping, for their eyes were, verse 43, heavy. Verse 44, he left them again, and he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Nothing wrong with praying the same thing over and over. Jesus did it. And then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Do you see it? Jesus is in full control of the situation. His omniscience and his sovereignty are being manifestly displayed. He says, the hour has come. I will be trading. He says, get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He's not saying like, oh, you know what? I know it's coming. Judas and this whole Roman cohort, they're coming after us. We better get out of here real quick. Absolutely opposite. He is going to meet them. He has the fortitude of the soul. You see, when we pray, it gives us steel and strength to do the will of God, even when our body says, we're not going to like this. Even when it's not popular, even when you're alone and isolated because everybody else seems to be sleeping or falling away. Jesus says, it's happening, it's time, and I'm ready. And he goes out to meet them. Talk about a verse that just emanates spiritual strength. Verse 46. And there's a great principle here. We have to capitalize on the times when we have opportunity to pray. Hey, are things going good for you? Things are pretty good at school. Work's going okay. Family life's going all right. Kids are settled. Grandkids are doing okay. I think I'll just kind of take it easy and take a little hiatus from God. Actually, this is the time to bring steel to your soul. And we do so through prayer. 
Well, I'll tell you, what we need to do is we need to go completely to Jesus, who is the overcomer. I don't know about you, but I have found myself to be a failure more times than I want to recount. And I imagine that you're in the same boat. It's just something in us. And yet, this is written so that we'll see that Jesus is the victor. He is the overcomer. It is a beckon call of the gospel. Trust him. Put your faith in him. Think about Jesus. I mean, he's our only hope. He has the definite picture of the future. Who knows what's going to happen? Jesus. In fact, he even tells them. Even after I rise again and I'm going to meet you in Galilee, he tells them what's going to happen before it happens. He has a deep fellowship with the Father. It's Jesus. If anybody knows the will of the Father, it's Jesus. Go to him. Trust him. He has the divine ability to redeem and regenerate his people. He's, he told them, I'm, my body's going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be sacrificed so that there will be remission of sins. I will redeem you and I'll regenerate you. I will ratify the new covenant and I'll redeem you with my blood. It's Jesus. Do you want salvation? You want life? You want forgiveness? It's found in only one. It's found in Jesus. And let me tell you something else about Jesus. He is absolutely dedicated to his followers. There is a deep-seated devotion to his people, even with their fears, their frailties, and their failures. Man, I tell you what, that is such good news for a guy like me. Because, yeah, fears, frailties, failures could be my life story. Huh? How about yours? I've got Jesus. Hey, I'm nothing. He's everything. And so I trust him. And that's where I experience strength. And that is the joy of the gospel. That you and you and I place our trust and faith in Jesus. We're not just giving merely an intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe he died and paid the penalty for our sins. Good. I'm in heaven and I'll live however I want. No, the gospel is a call to realize we're sinners, to repent and to truly trust in Jesus as him, as our savior alone. And when we do, we're united with him forever. But I'll tell you, we experience the strength of Jesus in the times of prayer. And yet, we don't really like to pray very much, do we? I'll, just, I'll give you some things I've jotted down some different reasons why I don't pray or I've found that others don't pray. Sometimes we're just so consumed with the activities of our life. Job, school, you know, we've got all these things going on, so we don't pray. Sometimes we've just grown callous. We have lost the wonder of God. Sometimes we're just so confident in our abilities. You remember when it was all about Jesus for you? But, but somewhere along the line, it became, well, yeah, you know, God helps him along the way. But shift, there's been a shift from Christ accomplishing all things in my life to I do it. My strength, my eloquence, my intelligence. Let me give you another. Maybe we're, so con- we're concerned that we aren't going to like God's plan. I mean, if I really pray, Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. Maybe it won't be something that I would like. I, would, I might not like that. I'm not going to pray that. I'm going to stay in the shallow end of the pool. Maybe we're convinced that prayer is nice but not necessary. Or maybe we've simply become comfortable with old patterns. Let me tell you, before Christ's days, B.C. days, did you spend a lot of time in prayer? No. Uh-uh. Why? Because it was all about you, right? You were in charge. So you thought. When we come to Christ... It is the realization that he's Lord of our life. And so the gospel is invitation to trust in Jesus, the overcomer, 
The very one, when he says, get up, let us be going, he's going to go and pay the penalty for their sin. He's going to take it all. He is going to bear it in his body because of his love for his people and for his father. And so, friends, let me just tell you, we've got one place to go for victory. It's Jesus. Like Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then it says, Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need help? It's found in Jesus. That's why the scripture just says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me just tell you, most of the battles that you and I face, they're either won or lost before they are fought. Do you know that? Right now is the time for fortitude of the soul, strength from Christ. Because let me assure you, the battle is out there and it is waging and it is raging. And so what we do is we just prayerfully go to Jesus. And you know what Jesus is doing right now? What do you know what Jesus is doing right now? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He continues to pray for his people like he did in the garden, like he's doing right now. And so it is in prayerfully trusting God's sovereignty that we experience the peace of Christ's presence. Trusting, Lord, it's about you. Lord, I am yours. Everything, my finances, my life, my dreams, what you've given me, I completely lay at your hands. May your will be accomplished in my life. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for a fascinating passage of Scripture that tells us that we and in ourselves are frail and full of failure, but Jesus is the victor because he's the overcomer. And we are united with him. You never see us in our sin. You always see us in Christ. You love us and you're committed to our growth and our development. That is why we've even encountered this passage today. So, Lord, give us a great love for you. That we would simply be a people of prayer, walking in the strength of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.